Welcome to The Resilient Surgeon, part of the STS Surgical Hot Topics podcast. Our goal with The Resilient Surgeon series is to inspire our colleagues to be their best selves in and out of the operating room using scientifically proven tools and recovery strategies of the world's top performers. I'm Dr. Michael Mattis, and in each episode, I will talk to game changers, some of the world's top executive coaches, psychologists, an ex-Navy SEAL officer, and physician scientists who will share evidence-based practices, real-world strategies, and their own personal stories and experiences to help you build your resilience and to help you be your best self no matter what. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. I talk in the book about, you know, how futile it is to try to clear the decks before you move on to the important stuff because the decks will never be clear. The discomfort of letting things take the time they take instead of always hurrying them to go at your own, the pace you want them to go at. All of these things together come down to this kind of can you just feel the slight anxiety that that arises and that triggers and just sort of ride it out for a bit and see what happens? And I think if you can, it's kind of a superpower. That is Oliver Berkman, the author of the New York Times bestseller, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Although Mr. Berkman is a writer and a previous columnist for The Guardian in England, he also wears two other hats. He is a recovering productivity geek. Those are his words. And he is a philosopher about life and what brings value and meaning to our lives and how this intersects with the tsunami of the modern world that we all live in. Imagine for a minute that you're doing something, say talking on the phone with someone you love, rounding on your patients, reviewing a paper for a journal, or meditating for just 10 minutes. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the struggles I bump up against repeatedly all day long is this feeling of having this productivity pressure clawing at my back that pushes me into what Marilyn Robinson calls a joyless sense of urgency. This chronic sense of urgency can end up turning whatever I am doing into a mild, or maybe not so mild, pain in the ass. Now I use the Waking Up app by Sam Harris to meditate on most days. During Sam's guided meditation, it is common for him to start the session by saying the following, and I quote, For the next 10 minutes, just give yourself this time, the next 10 minutes of your life, by fully committing. Now here Sam is not just giving us the common directive to be more present, although he is. More importantly, he is trying to convey the idea of committing fully to whatever we are doing so we can give ourselves permission to drop that joyless urgency that claws at our mental backs all day long in this modern world. That is what 4,000 weeks in today's conversation is really all about. Giving ourselves permission to not be a lean, mean production machine and in the process, reclaim what it means to be a human being. The program will return after a message from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Dr. Ara Vaporjan. I'm so excited to share news about the new STS cardiothoracic surgery ebook. It is the most complete and authoritative online resource of cardiothoracic surgical information available anywhere in the world, and it was authored and edited by the specialty's leading experts. This ebook provides a rich multimedia educational experience that includes regularly updated content in both cardiac and general thoracic surgery. So no more waiting for the textbook publishers to issue a new version every few years. We use the ebook in my training program, and the residents love the high-quality illustrations, photos, 
and surgical videos. The new ebook is available online or through a mobile app so that it's available in the office, at home, or at any point of care 24-7. To see a sample and learn more about the STS Cardiothoracic Surgery ebook, go to sts.org slash ebook. Today's guest on The Resilient Surgeon is Oliver Berkman, the author of the New York Times bestseller, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And what an honor it is to have Oliver as our guest today. Oliver is a thought leader and a writer. And from 2006 to 2020, he wrote a weekly column on health and well being for The Guardian called This Column Will Change Your Life. He has also written two previous books The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, and Help How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done. 4,000 Weeks Time Management for Mortals is a masterpiece and one of the most important books I have ever read. Why do I say that? Well, to borrow a concept I learned in 4,000 weeks, this book will trigger a second order change in your perspective. And a second order change is not an incremental improvement, but a change in perspective that reframes everything about our lives. But don't take my word for it. Here is what other famous thought leaders are saying. Adam Grant, this is the most important book ever written about time management. Oliver Berkman offers a searing indictment of productivity hacking and profound insights on how to make the best use of our scarcest and most precious resource. His writing will challenge you to rethink many of your beliefs about getting things done, and you'll be wiser because of it. And Krista Tippa writes, this book is at once sobering and refreshing on all that is truly at stake in what we blithely refer to as time management. It invites nothing less than a new relationship with time and with life itself. And Daniel Pink says, this profound and often hilarious book will prompt you to rethink your worship of efficiency, reject the cult of busyness and reconfigure your life around what truly matters. Personally, I think of Oliver's 4,000 weeks as a life positioning system, if you will, like a GPS for the river of our lives that can guide us to, in Oliver's words, doing whatever magnificent task or weird little thing it was that you came here for. Oliver, thank you so much for saying yes to being on the Resilient Surgeon podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for that uh, extraordinarily flattering introduction. I appreciate it. You're welcome. So, you know, at the beginning, I'd like, you know, just so we make it clear that this is not really a, a typical time management book. What, what is this book, 4,000 Weeks, not about? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it's a little hard to say what it's not about because it's difficult, as I discovered writing a book on this topic, not to make it about absolutely everything. But I can say what it isn't in terms of its approach, right? I didn't want to, it wasn't, I didn't want to sort of offer a, a list of 10 steps so that you could precisely emulate my system for organizing my time, which, you know, on a bad day, isn't even that good of a system. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I didn't want to give a sort of a laundry list of, you know, these are the six areas that you should spend time on for your life to be meaningful. Um, so that both in terms of the content, I wanted it to be about um, the, the sort of the, the most fundamental matters about how we relate to time. And then in the sort of approach, I 
would not have felt honest or authentic doing it in a sort of um from the perspective of somebody who has his, his life completely sorted out now generously right. sharing this wisdom with others we're all on this um baffling and often stressful journey together so i wanted yeah, to sort yeah. of uh have that be um a part of it and you know while there are techniques in this book i do especially at the end run through a list of specific things that you can implement and execute i think it is as you've implied in your introduction more about a changed way of looking at and thinking about time rather than sort of a set of methods or or modalities you know for for right. for um yeah. for, for managing time well your personal touch and authenticity uh and your humanness shine through in every page of that book and for me that's one of the things that made it so um just so refreshing it was really quite remarkable it is remarkable now you know so there's there's here's the philosophical sort of element of this it, it, the, the book is deeply philosophical uh, at its outset but there, there's a concept in the book that you talk about that we humans are time can you can you elaborate on on, on that <laughs> on that notion because it really is is foundational to everything that you talk about in the book in, in my opinion Right. I, I agree with you. Um, it's funny to try to sort of characterize it right up front, because I feel like in the context of the book, I can only sort of get to this incredibly weird notion after about three chapters of preparation, but I'll try to go straight to it now. I mean, this is an idea that occurs in all sorts of um, philosophical and spiritual traditions. In the book, I get at it partly through the work of Martin Heidegger. But actually, since writing the book, I've encountered something very similar in the Zen uh, scholar and uh, founder uh, Dogen from uh, many centuries ago. Anyway, I think the simplest way into it is just to suggest that our finite time, the fact that we only have this short period of time uh, on the planet, it's so fundamental to our existence that it uh, begins to make more sense to suggest that we are time rather than that we have time. But I can go into the, try and get a bit more sort of precise about that, but just this general idea that, you know, we all of us have a set of talents, a set of skills. We're born with certain socioeconomic privileges or lack of them in a particular city. You know, there are all sorts of circumstances that affect what we can and can't do in our lives, but none of them, are so utterly fundamental to anything we try to do than the fact that we're doing it in this finite uh, little stretch of time and the ramifications of the fact that we don't have uh, all, all the time in the world. And then part of the usefulness of this strange notion that we are time is that it, it I think it, it calls into question this assumption we make that time is like a resource. It's not us. It's something separate to us that we have, like we have yes. how much money we have or the physical possessions that we have. If you treat time like something you have, and we do all the time, <laughs> and to some extent we probably can't avoid it, but if you do that, you, that's, you keep running into kind of, you keep running into this fact that time actually isn't a resource in that sense it, it's more fundamental to our being than those other things so if you think well okay if i've got a resource that ought to mean that i get to control what to do with it so i can control what's going to happen with my day well when does that ever happen in a in a reliable right. fashion uh if i if i 
have time, then it ought to then I ought to be able to sort of um, set some of it aside and use it for later and, and all these kind of things that we naturally think of if we relate to time as a resource. And then they go wrong and cause stress and anxiety because actually time doesn't have that quality. It's very hard to pinpoint what time is, psychologically speaking, when you really try to focus on it. And in a way, less complicated just to think of time as the same thing as your life. I mean, it, it, it gets a little bit abstract and hopefully we can talk in some more specifics and that notion will become clearer to listeners because I don't yeah. know if I just you make know, it all that clear. I don't know if you've read the book by Carlos Rivelli, you know, uh, The Order of Time, and he, he's a quantum physicist and and he, he argues, I mean, very convincingly that time isn't even a thing. Uh, right. It's not a thing uh, and that it is, in fact, uh, it doesn't exist. But that's, at a, that's for another podcast, perhaps. <laughs> well, that's physics. Yeah, but actually there is an overlap here, isn't there? Because, there is. you know, another way to say that we are time might be to say that there's no such thing as time, that there is just uh, this moment, this moment, this moment, until there aren't any more moments. Um, and that all our troubles with time on a day-to-day -day basis can in some sense, I think, be um, traced back to, to this mistaken notion that it is a thing, that thing is separate from us, and yes. we can exert a kind of, we can expect to exert a kind of control and command over it that, that actually we can't. Yeah. And again, as you so beautifully elucidate in the book, this notion of control and this relationship of time that we have as a resource, that is the source of so much of our anxiety and misery as human beings. And it's so right, and it's so sort of historically contingent in a way, right? As well, that 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 there are many times in the history of humanity, and maybe even some places today, where that wouldn't have been or isn't the right. um, the default way of 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 thinking about time. If you had gone and asked an, an early a, a medieval peasant in in the north of England, where I'm speaking to you from now, you know, if you'd gone to them and and asked them these questions about like do you feel like you have enough time? Is life moving too quickly or too slowly? Uh, you know, are you too busy or not busy enough? Like it just would not have made sense. It's not that they were just more kind of resigned to their fate or chilled out. Or so. It's just these right. questions would not have registered because what, what do you even mean? We, what are you talking milk, about? We yeah. milk the cows when it's time to milk the cows and, right. and we harvest the crops when it's time to harvest the crops. And there are lots of disadvantages to that way of life. There's lots that you need our modern notion of time in order to be able to do but it's useful also to see that it's like it's an option it's something you can step out of uh as, as well as it doesn't need to sort of completely govern your your thinking and your life yeah uh, for me personally one of the most uh, profound uh, second order shifts uh, prior to even reading your book was uh you know joseph goldstein the the famous meditation meditation teacher you know talks a lot about this idea of impermanence and mm -hmm. and impermanence kind of being a sense of or a state of being enlightened in that you you just don't take all of it so seriously because everything is constantly changing we are changing there's just a relentless forward progress of change and to really dip into that and accept that in your bones there's a sort of liberating quality about that but now we're perhaps getting off on the deep end of, of topics. <laughs> no, I, yeah, it's, it's all the same idea, though, I think. Yeah, yeah I think impermanence yeah. in Buddhism, 
being toward death in Heidegger. It's all, yeah. it's all everything is trying to get at the same. About the same thing. Yeah. Very strange and hard to yeah. articulate yeah. feeling. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm going to read a quote by Alan Watts, uh, a philosopher. That you, this quote is from your book. People are like donkeys running after carrots that are hanging in front of their faces from sticks attached to their own collars. They are never here. They are never there. They are never alive. And in the context of that quote, you know, you, the last chapter actually in the book is the human disease. And can you, can you kind of integrate those two things and tell us what the human disease is that you've so beautifully articulated? Right, so the, that, that great quote from Alan Watts comes in the context of looking at one of the symptoms, I think, of, of our default way of thinking about time is that we invest very heavily in, a, in an instrumental attitude toward time. Mm -hmm. So if you think of time as something that you use and only as something that you use and that you have to use well and be uh, as efficient as possible, and if you really go all in on that attitude that time is something you use, in, implicitly you're always saying it's for some future purpose, right? The only value of your mo of any given moment is whether it is helping you get to some next place. And all sorts of different people have noticed this, this problem through the history of you know philosophy and other disciplines. But we all have to do that to some extent. Um, when you're writing a book, you know, you don't just write mm -hmm. the book for the for the enjoyment of the moment, you do it because you are trying to get to uh, a finished book. But but all sorts of cultural and psychological pressures, I think, push us to just completely take that attitude to the exclusion of any more present oriented attitude. And that's when you get into this mode where your whole life, even your leisure activities, mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're valuing them all entirely on the basis of, of where you're trying to get to. And so you're missing your life because you're always leaning into the future. You're always placing the value of life at some point in the future. The future never actually arrives. And then where I'm getting, I suppose, to connect that to this idea of the human disease is just that here we are in this situation of, of being finite and having to eventually die. And, um, and as a result, having strictly limited time and also having strictly limited control over how that time unfolds. And I think that for a lot of us anyway, what we're doing when we're instrumentalizing time, when we're looking into the future, when we're always trying to get to that future place is that the, the real fantasy is that the future place we might get to would be to not suffer from this human condition anymore, right? Yes. We might be so on top of our lives. You know, we don't think about it in these explicit terms, but I think if you are someone like me who spent like many years thinking that next month or next year, you're going to be in this commanding position of being so well organized and so efficient and so self-disciplined that you never have to make any tough choices. You get to handle everything. And that you, in a way that is something like wanting immortality, right? It might, you might mm -hmm. not actually articulate it in those mm -hmm. terms, but it is this desire to sort of be godlike with respect mm -hmm. to our time, instead of acknowledging that we are totally uh, human about it. Human, yeah. And so this human disease idea is just like, um, it, it's terribly tempting to think of our situation in time as something that needs to be solved, as life as a problem that needs to be solved, that it might be possible to get to a place where the, 
these basic conditions of being finite did, somehow didn't apply. I don't know. This may or may not resonate for individual listeners because I think we're sort of talking about the underlying agenda and it's often hard to see that that's present just in your thought like oh my goodness my to-do list is too long for the time that I have available but I think it's all connected because I think that a lot of the time we're making our problems with time worse by layering not just the fact that you've got a lot to do by the weekend or something but that you ought somehow to be able to get to a different kind of condition in which you were totally the master of your time and it's a terrible personal failing that you uh, still find yourself overwhelmed by having so much to do and it just isn't because it's kind of built in to <laughs> to our situation i hope that makes sense you know it does and in a, in a sense i mean the, as you just highlighted there that sort of misery of inability constant inability to complete everything you know, right, right. it reminds me because I was once addicted to prescription narcotics and it reminds me of the daily today I'm going to cut back and mm -hmm. then I would fail. And then, you know, it, it's the same sort of endless cycle of struggle against that. And it wasn't until I fully capitulated that, you know, life changed for me in that in that regard. And I think there's a certain I mean, there's no question in your book, you you, you really highlight the same idea that this, this capitulation to the reality that we can't do it. In fact, I, that brings me in a sense to the moment that you had on the park bench in Brooklyn, which was, I, as I gather from the book, it was the genesis of, of this, of this uh, journey for you. I mean, maybe you could tell us about that event. Yeah, sure. I mean, as I write in the book, you know, I was for many years, what I would describe as, and many people describe as a, a productivity geek, you know, completely obsessed with <laughs> constantly tinkering with my systems. And, you know, to a certain extent, I still am. And I just remember sitting on a bench maybe in a winter minute, morning but, um, in Prospect Park in Brooklyn, where we lived then, and, you know, facing a day of work that seemed even more overwhelming than usual, and engaging in my usual mental activity of trying to figure out what ingenious scheduling system or combination of time boxing and Pomodoro technique and, and all the rest of it I was going to use to sort of power through all this stuff yeah. and thereby, you know, justifying my existence on the planet or something, because it's all very bound up with self-worth, I think. And, um, and then just suddenly thinking like, hang on, none of this is ever going to work. I've tried this a hundred times. I've been writing a newspaper column where I get to test these things out and none of them have brought this kind of relief that I seem to be seeking. And, you know, I don't want to overdo this moment. It was an intellectual understanding and the sort of more embodied understanding took many months and continues course, to this day. But, yeah. but there's this kind of, it's this awareness that what I was trying to do with regard to time was absolutely impossible. Impossible like trying to make two plus two add up to five. Not just that I hadn't found the right technique or that I hadn't found the right amount of self-discipline, that to sort of be capable of anything and everything that might be thrown at me, especially in an era, in a world where those inputs are just infinite. There's no reason ever to believe that the amount of things you might want to do or feel obliged to do or be asked to do, there's no reason to believe that that's ever going to be limited to your capacities they could very well just go on and on and on forever and also and this is crucial for me anyway a little sense of the emotional agenda that was at play there right that 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 for me this might be different for different people but 
what I was hoping for in an unconscious way by seeking this level of kind of getting on top of time, getting on top of everything, getting everything sorted out was the kind of promise that then sort of quote real life would begin. And I could go through my remainder of my adulthood, you know, not feeling afraid about taking scary decisions in my personal life or in my career. I could feel totally sort of in command and, and invulnerable. And of course, that was the beginning of the realization that, you know, you don't get to feel in command and invulnerable when it comes to decisions in, you know, big decisions in relationships or parenting or uh, mm -hmm. leaving a job to try to do something that matters more to you. You know, these things are scary. You don't get to control how they go and you don't get to control all the feelings that they, that they evoke. Um, that'll be different for different people. But I think the uniform, the, the sort of universal idea is that in one way or another, we do lots of things, especially when it comes to how we organize and use our time, mainly to try to avoid feeling certain feelings that we've kind of been brought up to believe we can't allow ourselves to feel. Yes. And they may be different for different people. Some people it might be to do with having to sort of please the rest of the world. Um, and the idea that you couldn't possibly disappoint people, otherwise, right. uh, you know, that would be catastrophic. Or you couldn't take a career path that disappointed your parents because that would be catastrophic. Or it could be, you know, a million different issues. And I was just sort of, I was going through my particular one. But they all have this kind of idea that we, we, we sort of resist the truth of our yeah. limited reality and end up, you know, pursuing all sorts of rather unhelpful approaches to time and to life in order to not feel that kind of the discomfort of, of, of the real situation. Yeah. Yeah. It gets, it gets at the formula that you know, this is one of the things that had a major impact on my life in terms of that second order shift. And that is, you know, pain times resistance equals suffering. And, you know, the more we resist the certain realities, you know, in front of us, uh, the more, the more misery we engender. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, you're, you mentioned narcotics and, and I mentioned briefly in the book um, ideas from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think, you know, this yeah. something in the spirit of 12 step is underneath all of this, because it is this idea that um, there's a certain kind of defeat you have to admit in order to step into the power that you do have. Right. So that you, mm -hmm. you, you need to stop in the case of time, you need to give up the attempt to, um, be infinite and limitless and and uh and not bound by finitude you need to give that up not then to live a life of despair but precisely so that you can then live uh, a life of you know accomplishing the greatest things that you are capable of because you've right. given up this impossible quest and it has a lot of parallels i don't want to sort of offend people by saying it's necessarily quite as serious but it has a lot of parallels to the idea of giving up hope of ever not being an alcoholic so that you can use your power to live a sober life where you don't actually drink. And, you know, it's, it's that yeah, same, exactly. it's that same idea. Same yeah. idea. Yeah. 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 Well, so moving on then we, you know, you talk in the, in the book about this idea of a conveyor belt and things, you know, the conveyor belt of, I guess, time, you know, and, um, you know, at my age, I'm 67, and, and I used to watch uh, I Love Lucy, a television show in the United States here. And one of the classic scenes is 
Lucy and Ethel, her friend, took a job uh, assembling candies on a conveyor belt. And, and they, they were so good at it that they decided to speed the conveyor belt up. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, it, all hell broke loose eventually. You know, they've managed for a while, but then all hell broke loose. And it was, you know, the candies are flying all over and it's just a, it's a complete mess. And I, I thought this was a beautiful metaphor uh, for the problem of burnout potentially. And I, and I mean, burnout is a, a big deal in the world of uh, medicine and uh, right. cardiothoracic surgery, uh, but it's also a big deal in, in modern society and, you know, young, young people in these high, high pressure jobs and, you know, uh, all the stuff. And it's written about in Harvard Business Review in yeah. so many yeah. venues. And I, I think a lot of this is, the burnout issue is is really structurally structurally related to the very things you're talking about and this idea of a conveyor belt. I just like to get your you know yeah no totally this this image as I use it originally comes from an American anthropologist Edward Hall who who sort of is trying to express this linear notion of time that we have this modern idea that we are in relationship to it and have to use it well and he talks about time as a conveyor belt with various containers going by, meaning hours, days, weeks, and that we have to sort of fill the containers um, as they pass. Otherwise we think we're wasting time. And if there are too many containers to fill and we feel rushed, and if there aren't enough, you know, if, if there aren't enough containers, we feel like there's not enough happening. And it's this constant attempt to keep up. And then I'm sort of extending this in the book by saying that most of our attempts to use time better and to get on top of things just seem to cause the conveyor belt to speed up um, exactly. as in the image that you um, mentioned. And so you get this problem where if you get really efficient at your work, you just end up with much more work and feeling even busier than before because all else being equal, if you make any system more efficient, but you don't do anything else to it, you just make it more efficient. It gets better at processing more and more inputs more and more inputs will flood in. It's interestingly parallel to what's called induced demand in um, in urban planning. You know, when they when they try to um, alleviate congestion on a freeway by adding a lane, mm -hmm. and then it makes it makes that route more appealing to motorists. So more cars use that lane, and then you more use that it. road, and then it the congestion sometimes reverts to what it was before. Um, I think it's important here, especially in the context you mentioned of, of, of uh, surgeons perhaps to, you know, not to imply that this is all a problem that comes from how we individually try to manage our time. Clearly burnout is the consequence of impossible demands being placed on people by the corporate structures that they're in, by the societal structures that they're in. And it's not, it's not like, oh, if you only took my advice and stop trying to become more efficient, it would all be, it would all be fine. But I do think, you know, firstly, we make it worse because we, we sort of, we think that there must be a way to meet these impossible demands. So we put a huge amount of effort into working more, trying to work more efficiently, trying to, um, you know, put in longer hours, because we're thinking that maybe at the end of that, we would actually be able to sort of conquer the situation. And so there is something very powerful in seeing through that, in, in sort of ceasing to psychologically collaborate with impossible demands. Even if you have to keep turning up to that job, even if you have to keep getting an inbox full of email every day that no human could expect to get through by the end of the day, 
there is part of this second order change we're talking about for me comes from just seeing like, oh, that level of demand is not meetable. Mm-hmm. I, I still have to do what I can if I don't want to get fired or if I want to, you know, thrive in my profession, but I don't need to imagine that if I could only, you know, put in one more heave that I could get to this position of, of, of calm, uh, with regard to all this work. And then you start to see that actually the only path to peace of mind in that situation uh, of, of sort of infinite inputs is in sort of beginning to reconcile yourself to the fact that a bunch of them are gonna get un, un, unaddressed, that, that, um, that you are not gonna be able to meet these impossible demands, that some emails are going to slip through the cracks, that some people are going to be disappointed in you or angry that you missed some deadline. Um, and that you have to sort of let that situation happen precisely in order to then be able to kind of pour your attention and your energy into, into doing the most important things. Uh, so again, it's this kind of giving up in order to... Uh, to, to make it to make real progress and to get real traction and to get a sort of purchase on 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 life and it you know it's not that I think most people are in a position to walk away from their inboxes forever but if the demands being made on you are impossible if they really are impossible then they're impossible you know <laughs> the clue is in the word <laughs> and that's useful to realize and to, and to be conscious about yeah yeah I'm working with the uh, cardiothoracic surgeon uh, coaching him and and you know the the i was able to get a second order change in perspective on uh, framing for him but the the challenge was to then get him to start drawing boundaries you know and, and saying no to some things you know the fear mm-hmm. and but he started doing it and the psychological relief has been nothing short of amazing, you know, and he realizes that, you know, he's, he's going to be okay anyway. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it works out. And uh, so it, it's a very, you just stated it so beautifully there. Well, the liberating thought for me in what you just said there is like, it's not that he previously was managing to do everything and now he's making some tough decisions. It's that actually he was making unconscious decisions before right because if there's too much coming in and you do what you can do something's falling by the wayside right and the difference is becoming conscious of that and being able to take wise decisions about what you're going to have to let fall by the wayside instead of just being the victim of other people's agendas or or you know whatever else it might be i have to say it's fascinating in the context of uh the profession that we're talking about here just because most of the time in what I'm writing there's a temptation to say well you know it doesn't really matter which set of choices you make here because it's kind of it's not life or death and I think that's probably false about at least some things that cardiothoracic surgeons do it really is life Mm -hmm. or death Um, and so you know there may be constraints on the decisions of how to use one's time that are very different for someone uh, dealing with that kind of activity. But you're still making decisions because if you're finite and the thing and the demands being made of you are infinite, then then it's just math that something is yeah. falling by the wayside, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, this this bring this 
just brought up a, a very interesting uh, notion that you talk about in the book, and I think it's germane here. And I'll, I'll try and point out how it is germane after you describe it. And that is your relationship with Twitter. And, and <laughs> this was great. Uh, so, and not, not just, you know, so we, we think of social media as like, oh, it's a distraction and keeping you from whatever, which it is. But there are second order effects of these uh, activities that we may not be really aware of. And I, I thought that Oliver and Twitter story is a great example of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still not great with my use of Twitter, but I think I am a bit more conscious and and uh, restrained than I than I was. So there's sort of two parts to this. One is the whole question of why we succumb to distraction, and I think it's a very interesting discussion. And we, we're not usually quite honest with ourselves all the time about why we succumb to distraction. We could talk about that. But I think what you're specifically referring to here is just this idea that like, you know, if you waste an hour on a social media platform, it's easy to think that all that is lost, all that is changed in your life, your finite life is that you kind of wasted that hour. And it's like, okay, wasn't great, mm -hmm. but we all need mm -hmm. to, we all need some downtime. So I'm not going to, uh, you know, be too worried about that. But that, in fact, actually what happens with all of these attentional, um, all of these sort of attention economy platforms that learn what we are interested in and what gets us the most riled up and then gives us more of it, they, they really distort the whole mental map that you're using to engage with the world the rest of the time, too. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if, you, if, if, if you're exposed to sort of kind of the political partisanship on Twitter, for example, you may find yourself thinking of your political opponents as so alien and sort of non-human that it becomes really difficult for you to, you know, uh, have a holiday dinner with members of your extended family because, because how you think about people of that persuasion through Twitter has been so, you know, um, rendered so extreme. And then I talk in the book about, you know, uh, finding myself not on Twitter, times when I wasn't on Twitter, I'm making dinner or at the gym or something. And, mm -hmm. and like being engaged in kind of sort of very strenuous arguments with imaginary other people or people <laughs> who I'd seen on Twitter that day making, saying things that I thought were totally wrong. And so my, my mental content hours later is still influenced by, uh, by Twitter, which is an extraordinarily powerful um thing for a for like you know a website or an app to be able to do and then one other example of that is just that you know all these platforms are designed using so-called persuasive technology there's a huge amount of constant um adjustment and market research sort of going into structuring exactly how the website behaves exactly how the app behaves to keep you there as much as you can and then you find that actually other experiences that you might otherwise consider to be totally wonderful. And I write in the book about, you know, walking along a windswept Scottish beach mm -hmm. in the, as evening was falling or something, they're sort of a bit more boring than they were and a bit more annoying and a bit less absorbing because they are, are not designed by a team of a thousand highly paid corporate psychologists to try mm -hmm. to keep mm -hmm. you there, which Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, very much are. So, um, yeah. 
So, you know, the, the Twitter thing points out, what's the right term here? Uh, well, you know, Cal Newport in his book, Deep Work, talks about attention residue. And I, I would call this emotional residue, you know. Uh, and, you know, we may not be aware of the impact of our, the emotional residue of uh, our engagement with these various platforms. But, you know, as a, as a cardiothoracic surgeon, uh, the goal, in my opinion, should be to optimize your state of mind and physical preparedness for entry into the operating room. Hmm. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, uh, my, uh, my wife used to watch uh, a particular news show in the morning, every morning, and she loved it. And, and, you know, I could see why it was interesting and stuff, but it clearly left an indelible imprint on her day because there would, there would be times when she would come home from work and, and still talk about some of the, the things that she had seen on the news. And, you know, the, right. the, the kind of pernicious impact of these things in our, our daily psychology is, is for real. Uh, so, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and that, that, that you did mention, and I'd like to just have you explore that a little bit is the, why do we collaborate with these social media platforms <laughs> like we do? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's the word collaboration. And I think it's exactly right. Unwittingly collaborate, I would say. Yeah. I mean, I think this, this refer, you know, there's a lot of public dialogue discussion at the moment about what, how to, think about the big social media companies and the attention economy in general. And I'm sort of basically totally behind the idea that plenty of regulation and all sorts of, you know, ethical norms are important to introduce into this, uh, into these industries. But there's a risk when you talk about it like that, that you end up thinking about digital distraction as something that sort of assaults us and that we, um, that we don't, that we don't collaborate with. And yet I think most people, if they're honest, when they think about the moment in which they reach for their smartphone to start scrolling or something like that, you know, it's not that you're, it's not that I'm sort of writing some piece that is really important to me and I just loving the experience of writing it and I'm just rapturously lost in it. And then Twitter somehow sort of invades my um, attention and, and drags me away from this, uh, wonderful experience what's actually happening is i'm struggling and finding it hard and annoying in some way or intimidating or boring the work i'm doing and i and i'm it's with huge relief that i get to sort of go and it feels better to go and um scroll through some nonsense you know and it, and so we have this internal urge to distract ourselves and I think most people, if they're honest, would say that most instances of that kind of distraction happen that way. There's a different kind of distraction where somebody shouts like, watch out for that bus or something. And right. then you want, you want to be distracted in that situation and you didn't choose it, but it serves a function. This kind of distraction, I, I, it's kind of mysterious at first, right? Because we are, it, it, it happens when you're working on something that you really care about or when you're, you're, talking to somebody who you really care about. And it seems preferable in that moment sometimes to go and focus on the thing that you don't care about. And that is a very strange thought, except as I try to argue in the book, I think it's less strange when you see that, like it's not a coincidence that these tasks that we care about generate emotional, negative emotions that we then want to try to escape because 
the things you care about, the stakes are high. You're not confident you'll be able to do them. Maybe mm -hmm. the, you know, maybe you're, again, I don't know how much of this applies to surgery. I'm, I'm drawing examples from writing, but like- But it, it, it's not surgeons at surgery. It is the human surgeon. Right, right, yeah. exactly, right. And all yeah. the rest of that and all the work around it and, and their yeah. lives around it. I mean, you know, when I'm, when I'm working on a chapter from a, in a book, there's a reason it feels uh, it, it brings up negative emotions because I care about it, because I want it to go well and be well received, but I also can't control that I have the talent to do it well, or certainly can't control how to be received. So you're in this kind of somewhat scary high stakes situation and you're being brought into contact with your limits and how wonderful it feels by comparison to just sort of slide off into the limitless world of, 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 um, of the internet. You know, Cal Newport, who you mentioned, um, has this very nice line that, um, that what people call writer's block is, is really just the experience of writing, right? I mean, it's like, it's hard and you don't know what to put next. And occasionally you might get into flow and that's wonderful. But, but the idea that most of the time doing difficult stuff that we care about, whether it's writing or not, has some sense of difficulty to it, that's just that's just called being human. And I found that a very empowering realization because it's a lot easier to resist the urge to then go and, you know, waste an hour or more um, somewhere else. If you can see, oh, right. Yeah. That's, that's just the discomfort that comes from doing this. It's, it's right. not, there's not a sign that something terrible is happening. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is, is always awareness and understanding consciousness around these things really makes a difference in terms of yeah. what's yeah. going on under the hood. Yeah. So, okay. So now I'd like to, so that's kind of the set of kind of issues, if you will, around time and that. So what are potentially some of the solutions? And, and again, these are sort of uh, they, they're not prescriptions, but they're um, philosophical approaches. And I love the quote from Mary Oliver, the poet. And she says, attention is the beginning of devotion. You know, what, what are your thoughts around attention and presence? And there, there seems to be a real theme throughout your book of that being the central, you know, defining character of our ability to do this stuff well. Yeah, I think it's a lovely line from Mary Oliver, because it really does, in a very down to earth way it just shows you know like if you can't pay attention to something you can't really care for it or for them uh you you know what does it mean to love someone or even what does it just mean to enjoy a walk in the country yes. if if your attention is not at least largely on that person or, or thing i suppose you know i do think that the main benefit of the perspective that we're exploring here it has a sort of a it has this kind of sort of negative or uh, via negativa quality, I guess, to borrow a term from theology. I think it, it's sort of by seeing what's not the case that that you get towards a different way of relating to time. So I think a lot of this is just about dropping this impossible struggle to try to do everything or be everything to um, it's about sort of seeing that this kind of mastery this particular kind of sort of domination over your time is not on the cards and and through seeing that something sort of evaporates and a, a fog clears and it's a lot easier than to just spend your day doing a bunch of things that make a difference and that you care about without 
um, sort of stitching them into this crazy agenda of uh, of of maybe sort of totally winning the battle with with time. But you know, I, there are definitely sort of certain specific techniques that are more in tune with that way of thinking than than others. And in the back of the book, I do have this appendix of kind of very specific tools, I suppose, to um, to help sort of manifest this way of of being. I, I think, you know, just really, if we, if I can get these concepts to people, you know, tension is the beginning of devotion, you know. We're I mean, ready. I think one big part of it is just this expectation of a little discomfort when you yeah. start doing things that you care about, when you start spending time in a way that you care about it, that could be the discomfort of difficult work it could be the discomfort of neglecting things in order to focus on other things the discomfort of um i talk in the book about you know how futile it is to try to clear the decks before you move yeah. on to the important wow. stuff because the decks will never be clear the discomfort of letting things take the time they take instead of always hurrying them to go at your own at the pace you want them to go at all of these things together come down to this kind of can you just feel the slight anxiety that that arises that that triggers and just sort of ride it out for a bit and see what happens? And I think if you can, it's kind of a superpower. It, boy, you hit the nail on the head there. And that, that's true of so much of this. And, you know, the, uh, I mean, myself included totally in the past, uh, much better at it now, but that is literally feeling and recognizing that I'm feeling something and not running away from it and yeah. and using that as as a signal if you will for what you know what i should be doing yeah absolutely right well so you know attention is the beginning of devotion that's one i think that's a kind of a foundational concept and another one is you 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 tell the beautiful fabulously funny story of jiddu i don't know how to pronounce it krishnamurthy uh yep. the spiritual teacher and uh, and you and I'll just read to you read read for the audience in the book, uh, and it's really about worrying about what might happen tomorrow. So you recount the uh, time when G Jidu was giving a lecture in California, and he leaned over to the crowd, and conspiratorially, and he said, "Do you want to know what my secret is? You see, I don't mind what happens. So uh, for me." That, that sounds like you kind of, I mean, it could, it could potentially sound like, well, whatever happens is, doesn't matter, but it really has much more depth than that. Your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I find this very sort of uh, something to aspire to and something yes. to sort of feel what feel one's way into this idea of not minding what happens. I don't think it's correct to interpret it as meaning it doesn't matter Screw what it. happens. Yeah. Right. I don't think it means we should give up trying to make our lives or the world um, better, or that, you know, it's fine that all the terrible things that happen in the world are, uh, are happening. I think what it means is, for me anyway, and I'm writing about it in the book in the context of planning and trying to sort of exert control over time by, by real strenuous kind of planning. I think, when, I think when we're sort of caught in worry and anxiety about the future, what's happening is we're sort of we, we've got a sense of how we think things have to go in order for everything to be okay. And then you're sort of waiting to see on, on tenterhooks as it were, right. Waiting yeah. to see whether the, mm -hmm. whether things turn out that way. And what's so liberating about that Krishnamurti idea in, by contrast is like, 
no, you can have intentions. You can put your best effort in to try to make things go in the way that you'd like them to go. But if you can sort of a little bit give up that notion of constantly needing to find out if it works, if you can just sort of take an attitude of curiosity to like, I wonder how the day is going to unfold, right? You can still exert agency. You can still, um, you can still try to influence things, but, but the worry and the anxiety is greatly reduced because you can just think, look, it's, you know, uh, there's, there's no point trying to worry about trying to control things that are beyond my control. The future is always in the future. Um, and can't be controlled from the standpoint of the present. And there's a great lightness about that, I think, a sort of lightness of, of spirit in the idea that, you know, if you, if you can occupy a little bit more, again, I'm certainly not perfect myself, uh, if you can occupy a little bit more that spirit of like, okay, I'm going to walk into this meeting or open up this email or go to the dinner table and I kind of don't mind what how it, how it goes. I might have preferences, but it's okay, you know? Yeah, it's really for for me. It's 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 a a state of being more relaxed rather than tense. Uh, it allows a certain relaxation because if you really don't mind what happens, you you may care about what happens, yeah. but you're okay with whatever happens because you can move along and deal with it. You know, I think that difference between caring and minding is that's that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. no one's saying. No one's saying it doesn't matter and you that you have to not care but not to, at all yeah 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 you don't need to live in resistance to exactly things that don't go the, your way yeah and you know I, I think this can be practiced tactically on on a very small level to build the muscle i mean traffic you know any number of of little annoyances and perturbations that arise every day in our lives and to simply kind of go with the flow on those things and build that muscle as a way to to work that yeah yeah no absolutely and you can you don't need to be able to do it in the face of any huge issue you just huge need to issues. try it out you know yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean i find i we've got a i've got a five-year-old son and um it, it's sort of transformative when it comes to to parenting in a way because it makes sort of the experience of just hanging out uh with child right. way more fascinating and enjoyable because like i don't actually care most of the time what what we do with a with a two-hour period say in which i'm in which i'm the 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 parent in charge you know um so it's so odd to find it to to, to sort of set up these mental uh, constructs that that mean it's bad if we end up doing something other than what i'd planned you know yeah. there are extremes i don't want to no, doing nothing but watching TV all day long every day. But but yeah. there's a huge range of things that are actually fine as long as I haven't gone into it with the sense that only one thing is fine. Right, right. So now you, you also talk about procrastination and there's good procrastination and sort of bad procrastination. Can you elaborate on that a little bit as one of the, the sort of tactics for dealing with all of this? Sure. I think, you know, the procrastination is such a funny notion. If you really try to define it rigorously you'd have to say that it was something like failing to make progress on things that matter i don't know maybe people have a different approach but now if, if, if procrastination is failing to make progress on things that matter then then one of the um consequences of the whole perspective we're exploring here 
is that you'll always be procrastinating at any given moment on, on almost everything, because there's always going to be more that matters than, than you can find the capacity to focus on. So that then immediately makes you think that there's, see that there's something amiss in the idea of eradicating procrastination. Uh, and as I quote um, a writer and meditation teacher in the book, Greg Kreck, who says that um, you know procrastination is something we need to get better at rather than mm -hmm. get rid of, meaning making conscious, wise decisions about about you know what three things you're going to do with your work day today and what 500 things you're going to neglect because you are going to be like that is going to be the ratio <laughs> um, so it's just a question of making wise wise decisions um, and then I sort of talk about a different sense of procrastination that I'm sort of phrasing as bad procrastination I suppose which is the experience of kind of 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 not launching uh important projects of not getting of not committing to important relationships and everything else out of some desire to hold on to the notion that um it might be possible to do them without difficult choices without encountering our limitations without encountering the ramifications of our limited time so the example i give is begins with a fable from a <clears throat> begins with a fable from a philosopher called Costica uh, Bradatan, who um, talks about this um, sort of apocryphal architect from Persia who designed the right. uh, world's most beautiful mosque. It was uh, a completely perfect creation and, and all the, um, the greatest builders in the land were begging him to let them, uh, let them create it. But instead he sort of stared at the plans for three days and nights and then burned them all because uh, he couldn't bear the thought of bringing his um, fantasy into reality because whenever you bring any fantasy into reality, it is necessarily imperfect by by contrast to by comparison with the fantasy. And that procrastination is often this desire to hang on to a fantasy of how theoretically great something could be rather than experience the sort of uncomfortable, compromise-filled reality of it in reality, uh, in the physical material world, because it's more comfortable that way. But of course, that way you never launch the project. You never get any mosques right. built. Yeah, yeah. That reminds me of a scene in a film with uh, Tom Cruise called Collateral. <clears throat> and he, he's, a, he's a, an assassin and he hijacks this cab driver. And the cab driver has longed to have his own limousine service. He's got pictures posted up on his his visor and you know he's looked at those for years and he's always planning but but never never doing yeah right right and that yeah because there's something really there's something that feels free and limitless about not having to be pinned down by the reality of the yeah. experience yeah. yeah yeah i'd like to cover two things now that i think are really important uh for us as a community as cardiothoracic surgeons and that is rest and patience and the value of rest. And you talk about atelic activities and, and, and it really fits into boredom and stuff. So could you, could you comment on atelic activities and how important rest is? Sure, I mean, I think the, the idea of an atelic activity, that phrase comes from the philosopher Kiran Satya, and he's, 
he's talking about how when we get locked into this instrumental mindset where everything we're doing with our time is, is for some future uh, attainment, it becomes very difficult to find any value in life now. And an atelic activity is just the idea of something that you do in your life for the joy and the pleasure and the absorption of doing it, not because it's leading up to somewhere. The example he gives, and I give in the book because it's very close to my heart, is um, is just hiking, right? That, that uh, you don't, generally speaking, hike in order to get better at hiking. You don't do it in the expectation that at some point in the future, you're going to say, okay, I've done all the hiking I was I was intending to do. I've, I've reached the, the culmination. You just do it because it's um, an absorbing and delightful thing to do. And, you know, I think that 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 speaks to the importance of having hobbies. You know, this this idea. Yeah. It's almost a bit embarrassing today to talk about having yeah. hobbies and to admit that you have a hobby. It's OK to have a side hustle, which is a hobby that you've managed to make into a source of profit. That's considered very. Uh, that's considered very cool. But again, mm-hmm. that's because you've instrumentalized it. And I think that right. um, there's something really interesting there about that. You know, because it's so. To get back to the discomfort piece, uh, we um, we're uncomfortable with resting, especially you know as modern people, the flywheel is just racing. When you sit down to rest, it doesn't feel good because it's you're actually it's right, and it's more comfortable to be doing things and checking things off, and. One way to combat that, I think, is to make space in your life, if you can, for something that is truly not for where it's leading. And it's tricky, right? Because it's very tempting to say, well, I do that because I'm running. I go running. But then if what you're doing with your running is all about training for a half marathon, you've kind of fallen back into the same mindset, right? You've kind of turned your leisure time into productivity time uh, again. And I don't want to sort of tell anyone who's training for a marathon to not to not do it but I do think that it's useful to think about whether there's something in your life that you do just for the moment of of doing it and then patience again you know we're all coming back again to this idea of the discomfort of your real relationship with reality and and that is to do with the patience piece is to do with speed right I think um it is painful to us in some way to accept to face the truth that certain processes and experiences and relationships just have a tempo that we don't get to dictate. Right. Uh, the example that I give in the book is, is reading, right? You, I think that to really benefit from the experience of reading a novel, say, you, you sort of just have to let it take the time it takes. You can do a little bit of things around the edge to speed up your reading rate and things like that, but basically, um, it dictates its own speed. And I think that when people say they don't have any time to read these days, what they often mean is that when they try to use their spare time to read, it, it feels wrong because they, they're they so accustomed to yes. things going faster. And this actually is much worse today in the presence of all our time-saving technologies. Again, as I explore in the book, it seems strange to say that you, people will be more impatient in a world with microwaves and email as opposed to only regular ovens and snail mail, because we can do things quicker. We can save time. So surely we should have more free time to relax. But of course, what happens is we get more and more impatient. I think because these technologies, they seem to take us right to the brink of having total control over our Mm -hmm. time, right? Mm -hmm. If you can cook your food in two minutes in a microwave, it begins to seem like you ought to be able to do it in 
zero seconds. And then those remaining two minutes just become incredibly aggravating. Aggravating, or, yes. Right. Yes. Or this example of like an example that I've felt myself a lot, how infuriating it is when a web page, instead of loading in less than one second, takes like five seconds to load. Yeah. It's like, it, yeah. it's really, it's really I frustrating. I still struggle with that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's crazy, but, uh, but it makes sense because, yeah, yeah uh, using the web, we get to feel like everything is at our fingertips. And then if there's a little barrier that's thrown up to that, um, it, it's much more annoying. And so I think there's something really subversively powerful in cultivating the ability to let things take the time they take, which I think is another way of talking about patience. Because, you know, in all sorts of settings, professional and other, if you can avoid giving in to that sort of omnipresent urge in the in society towards rushing, you actually can sort of, you can do better work. You can understand what you're reading better. You can, you can, you can actually make more progress faster is the irony. More progress right? faster. Yep, by, sure. by going, yeah. by going slower and by willing, by being willing to go through the emotional discomfort of, right. of going slower. Okay. So last thing here, and this is, this is brilliant, at least from my perspective, and that is the notion of cosmic insignificance therapy <laughs> what what is cosmic insignificance therapy this is just my admittedly slightly facetious terminology for, right. for something that i think is very important and useful and i'm not the first to observe it certainly it goes all the way back to the ancient greek and roman stoics at least um, and that is just that there is something empowering and meaning giving much as you wouldn't expect it of in um, in seeing the truth about how insignificant our tiny little lives are in the in the broad span of human history, or let alone you know the history of the planet or the universe, that, that mm -hmm. it becomes totally absurd to think about how how minuscule the flicker of time that a, a single human life is. Obviously, that has sent a number of philosophers through the centuries into sort of nihilism and into the idea that nothing matters and it's all pointless because we can't ever make enough of a difference. I think there's another way of looking at it, which is, well, firstly, two things, I guess. Firstly, for a certain kind of person, I include myself, maybe not everyone's like this, you can get really paralyzed in, in, with indecision about certain life choices or directions in, in work because of what ultimately amounts to a sort of absurd grandiosity that says like, oh, I've got to get this right because the stakes are so high. It will be so bad if I, um, if I mess this up and made a, a poor decision. And so there's something very, very liberating in that old idea of like hundred years from now, is anyone going to care? You know, it actually is like, to me, that's a reason to say, well, you might as well take a bold choice or make a courageous um, decision uh, because actually the stakes are a bit lower and it isn't quite the sort of, yeah. you know, the future of the cosmos does not depend on what yeah, you yes. chose. And that yeah. I think is, is, can be liberating. And then secondly, borrowing, as I do in the book from the work of the philosopher Ido Landau, there is this sense that when we think of ourselves as very, very significant, like the whole of history was leading up to us, when we have this kind of grandiose notion of our significance in the cosmos, it leads us to use a definition of a meaningful life, of what it 
what counts as spending a life meaningfully that sets the bar incredibly high and makes it very hard to sort of it leads to most people's lives not qualifying as meaningful at all if you've got to you know as steve jobs put it you know put a dent in the universe if you've got to change the world like every silicon valley startup uh, wants to do if you've got to sort of be an extraordinary person be a celebrity be famous you know suddenly that rules out all sorts of activities that surely we want to say are meaningful like um you know working in a job where maybe no one ever knows your name and that you only ever affect the lives of a small number of people but you make a positive difference to their lives like right. do we want to say that's not meaningful do we want to say that um joining an association that is helping restore some wetlands in your community is 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 meaningless because you're not saving the planet on a on a sort of grand scale you're just doing it in this small and local way i don't i don't think we do and i think sometimes the reason that people consider their lives or their jobs to lack meaning is not because they're doing work that doesn't speak to them but because they have this kind of unnecessarily exacting definition of what a meaningful life would be and so i think that's useful sometimes because it enables you to look at your life and be like oh you know i do this and i do this and you know these these things can matter even if they're not going to matter in in a millennium you know it's beautiful you know on that note i'm going to just read a, a small passage from your book that really just nails that on the head the average human lifespan is absurdly terrifyingly insultingly short but that isn't a reason for unremitting despair or for living in an anxiety fueled panic about making the most of your limited time it is a cause for relief you get to give up on something that was always impossible the quest to become the optimized infinitely capable emotionally invincible fully independent person you're officially supposed to be then you get to roll up your sleeves and start work on what is gloriously possible instead. So any other final thoughts, Oliver, before we wrap up here? I'm tempted to say I couldn't have put it better myself. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and actually, you know, I can't put it better myself in an impromptu conversation than in the paragraphs that I sort of sweated the blood over. But I think it's just that, it's just that idea comes back to it again and again, right? It's, It's great to have big ambitions for your life. It's great to want to try to do the sort of nearly impossible things if that's your bag but but to be on this treadmill of trying to do an impossible thing to try to be something impossible with regard to time it's such a huge distraction from being able to turn to what's yeah what's right in front of us and what we can do and I think there's just so much more peace of mind in dropping that particular kind of impossible quest dropping back down to the ground because it's once you're on the ground that you can put, you know, one foot in front of the other and, yeah. and actually and actually go places. Yeah. yeah and I, I think that the words, the key words in that last statement here is our peace of mind in in along the journey. You know, that that is really the thing that this this book provides. So again, thank you so much for your willingness to be on the podcast. And, um, and for this massive contribution, uh, so appreciated. And uh, I, I would recommend to everyone uh, that you go to his website, oliverberkman.com and sign up for his uh, newsletter or insights periodically. 
called The Imperfectionist. They're brilliant and they're short, not long reads, but really thought-provoking uh, articles. And also, uh, you still are on Twitter, correct? <laughs> <laughs> you got me. Yeah, yeah, I am. Yeah, at, at Oliver Berkman. Uh, a yeah. little, little less than I once was. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much, Oliver. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a lovely conversation. This has been The Resilient Surgeon, a podcast brought to you by the Society of Thoracic Surgeons. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about it. On social media, you can use the hashtag BeYourBestSelf. More information about the Society of Thoracic Surgeons is available online at sts.org.